Well, David found himself all alone, and now he knows without a shadow of a doubt that King Saul wants to kill him, and there's no indication that he's going to stop until he does. Now, David is no stranger to difficulty. He's, he's, it's followed him pretty much everywhere that he's gone to this point. But the difference is up to this point, he's always seemed to have help from somebody around him. Uh, he's received help from the prophet um, Samuel. He's received help from his best friend Jonathan. He's received help from his wife, Michael. Uh, but now he's in trouble. He's in desperate times, dire times, and there's nowhere now for him to be able to turn. And so he begins asking himself the question, same question that he actually wrote about and, and asked in one of the Psalms that he wrote, in Psalm chapter 1, verse 20, or Psalm 121 and verse 1, when he said, From where does my help come? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in that particular position? Look, many times when we're in trouble all our lives, we've we, we've learned to just look around us and try to get help from around us, from a parent or a spouse or a fam- another family member, friend, maybe a pastor in a church. And all throughout our lives, there are people there who have been able to help us through and in the midst of those difficulties and to be able to lead and, and, and walk through that with us. But if you live long enough, you find that there are some times that you find yourself in, in dire straits and times where either there's no help to be found around you Or you find yourself in a position that even though everyone may want to help, they just simply cannot help you because of the circumstances in which you find yourself in. And maybe you are like David. I know that I have been. And you ask the same exact question and say, from where does my help come? Now, fortunately for us, David not only asked that question, he also answered it for us in the very next verse of Psalm 121. And he answered it this way. He said, the question was, from where does my help come? And he answers, my help comes from the Lord. So what we find here in the scriptures is that David couldn't lean on anyone else. He was forced to lean on God alone. And this is the lesson that he's going to learn in chapter 21. Look, we've learned over the last several chapters within the context of this whole thing that, that God's people are going to be under attack, but God is always there to be able to help. And last week, we said that we can be assured of his help. Why? Because of the covenant relationship that he has made with us. And now we're going to see that covenant relationship demonstrated that his help is dependent on him. His help is not dependent upon us. So God wants you and I to be able to learn that even though we may rely on each other, and sometimes our help ultimately comes from God. And we need to, within our life, learn as quickly as possible and as earnestly as possible to lean solely on God in the midst of our trouble, knowing, being confident that he will indeed help. And I think what we find today in, these, in this pretty kind of odd passage of Scripture, to be honest with you, um, I, I know when we read it, some of you are like, huh, right? What, what are we doing with that? I do that every Scripture that I read. Um, but, but as we're reading through it, I think that there are going to be two truths that we see in this that are going to help us in our faith in God, believing that we can trust him even in the most dire of times. What are these truths? Two of them. First of all, God helps, God's help is not limited to my failures. Did you hear that? God's help for us is not limited to my 
failures. Now, what we find in the beginning of verse 1 is we find that, again, Saul, or David is, is fleeing. He's, he's fleeing out of, uh, out of a desperate heart and a desperate attempt to receive help. And he, wants, he goes off to a city called Nob that we read within the text. And, and the idea was to try to receive some help from a high priest there by the name of Ahimelech. And the Bible says when Ahimelech sees him, he says that, that he begins to tremble. And the idea is that he's trembling with fear. Why? Well, he's heard about this disagreement, to say the least, an understatement, between Saul and David, that David is running for his life and Saul wants to kill him. He knows the tensions in this. And with David coming to his front door, knowing that Saul may come as well, that he might be bringing trouble to his people, to him and the other priest and the people of Nod. And so he's trembling. And he asks him, he says, what is it that we can do for you? What is it that you want? And then at this point, this is where the story really gets strange to me. Like right off in the beginning, David comes up with this crazy story. Follow with me, if you will, in verse 2. He says, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter which, uh, about which I send you and with, uh, with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with a young man for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever it is that you have. So, Get this, David's going all cloak and dagger, okay, is what he's doing. He's like, I'm here. You might be wondering where I, why I've come here. He goes, I've come on a secret mission of the king. He goes, I'm going to a place, but I can't tell you where it is, to meet people, but I can't tell you who they are, to do something, but I can't tell you what I am ultimately going to do. This is all top secret. I could tell you, but then, of course, I would have to kill you. Um, but I won't. And so therefore, here's the idea. I'm on this secret mission, and I left in such haste that so quickly and so important is this mission that I kind of went all by myself, and I kind of forgot to pack some food, and I don't even have a weapon with me. And I would really appreciate if you would ultimately help me out at this particular point. And so the question for me is when I first read this is, Lord, what do I do with this? Because I don't know about you, but something smells kind of funky here. You know what I mean? Kind of, kind of strange. And for me, what I smell is a big fat lie, okay? And I'm not really sure what to do with this story of his. And, and as I begin to try to get some help, maybe from some other places, like some commentaries, I begin to look, and, and I found that I wasn't alone, that a lot of the other commentators are really struggling with what to do with this story as well. In fact, some say basically that it's just a big fat lie is what he's doing, bold-faced lie. He's not on any secret mission of King Saul. He's running for his life. King Saul doesn't have something good for him to do. He wants to cause him harm. So some are like, man, this is just a bold-faced lie. And he's lying in the midst of his struggle and his strife and the chaos of his life. The pressure got to him. He's just, he's desperate at this particular point. So he lies. Others kind of disagree with his take, and they say, well, he was not really lying. Really, it's just a little bit of deception, which I thought was kind of strange for a Christian author to be able to write. It's just a little bit of deception. See, he's not really talking about King Saul. He, notice, he didn't say King Saul. He said the king. And we know very well in much of David's writings that he often refers to God as the king. And so he is, in fact, God has sent him on a secret message. We know that he's going to be the next king of Israel. And, and, and very few people know this. This has all been very hush-hush. So he's not really lying. He's just kind of deceiving them in just a little way. But it's not really a lie. Then you have a third group of people that simply say, well, it is a lie, but it's not sin. Because he's lying for a good reason. Kind of like when your wife says, honey, do I look fat in these pants? 
right? I mean, you're right, and there's a part of you that's just kind of, I didn't mean to be offensive, I'm just saying, and you're, and you're like, this is no win, I, I don't know what to, yet. no, 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 I mean, but, and then you're like, what, are you lying? No, no, I, so that's probably a bad, I won't use that illustration in the second service. It came to me, wasn't in the sermon manuscript, and now I know why. So anyway, so you're following me. And so the idea is sometimes we feel like maybe this is for the good. And so they say, it's not really, he's lying, but it's not a sin because he was lying for a greater good. And that greater good would have been for the safety of Ahimelech. He knows that if Saul finds out that he receives help from Ahimelech and these priests, that he's going to be extremely angry that he's going to be found guilty of aiding and abetting this, this, this man, this running away from Saul. But if he tells him a lie and he believes this lie, then when Saul comes and he tells him, I only helped him because I believe that he was uh, on, on a journey because of you, Saul might have some type of grace and mercy on him. And next week we're going to find out that he has no grace and mercy on him. So the question is, where are we? What do we do on this? Is, is he doing what is right? Is he, is he doing what is wrong? Well, the truth of the matter is the Bible simply doesn't tell us. As one author says, and I think he says rightly, it doesn't, it doesn't justify nor condemn his actions. It just records them. Well, whatever the case, whether right or wrong, lie, not lie, lie, not sin, whatever it is, uh, the, 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 the emphasis is not on what so much what, what David does, but how God responds to what David does. And what God does is he supplies for him. He comes and he asks for bread, and it's exactly what he's given. Ahimelech actually gives him the, the high priestly bread, this, this holy bread, also known as the bread of presence. And this bread, I think, is kind of, it kind of tells us kind of overall what's happening in the story, because this bread was actually placed... Uh, um, in, in, in the holy place, in the tabernacle. And it was placed up on this kind of like table. And, and this bread was placed there as a continual reminder of God's people, of God's care of them in their 40 years of the wilderness. And so it was this visual symbol, this visual picture that God takes care of his own. And, and so this is the bread that he's ultimately given. And it's interesting because he's really undeserving of this bread. Because the law said that, he, that only the priests were supposed to eat of this bread. This was holy, consecrated bread only to the priests, not to common people. But we also know that in God's law, he, it also left it up to the priests that on certain occasions, if there was a special need, like somebody was starving to death, like in this particular situation, they could make the decision to be able to give it to him. And it's exactly what Ahimelech does. He gives them this bread. He's in need. And not only bread, but we continue to read on, and he also gives him the sword. Not any sword, but Goliath's sword was actually hidden there. And so he provides both of these things. Now, if you're like me and you're kind of a black and white person, how many black white folks do we have? You, you know what I'm saying like that? It's, it's either wrong or right. And it seems like the whole other world lives like in gray, right? And, uh, but I, I kind of grew up going, man, that's wrong for sure. I can sniff that baby out, right? And that's, that's definitely got to be right. And for some of us, there's no in-between. Well, for us, we kind of, it's hard for us to stomach the story, isn't it? Because we see this man who, whatever you want to call it, deception, lie, whatever, he's making this whole thing up, and he's certainly not telling the truth. You, you, you call it what it ultimately is. And for some of us, there's a rub there because we're wondering why in the world we know he's being deceptive, but at the same time, he is completely and utterly deserving of the help that he gets, but yet he still receives help. And in, for some of us, that just doesn't make any logical sense, does it? Because God helps those that are being good, not those who are doing bad things or making bad 
decisions. And yet, Dale Ralph Davis says, what else is new for God's people? He says, who would have daily bread if it rested on our own desserts? That is, if it rested on our own personal goodness. And I love this. He says, we would all be skeletons. In other words, what he's saying within the text of Scripture is this, is we're so surprised when God is good to bad people. But the truth of the matter is what we have to understand is when is that God's help for us is never limited in any way, shape, or form by our failures in the midst of difficulties, hardships, and stresses. Let's say it to you one more time, and then I think I need to unpack it a little bit more. God doesn't withhold his help from us when we falter under the crushing weight of desperate times. Do you guys remember playing board games? Like when you were growing up? Some of you are like, yeah, I still play them. I'm 97, and I love them, right? And it's like, it's like we love Monopoly, right? Monopoly and life. I don't even think, I guess they still have these things, right? I'm not talking about McDonald's game, but Monopoly and life and Battleship. Well, all these were great games, but the most stressful board game of all time was a game called Operation. Any of you guys remember this? This is with, it's got this big chubby guy, YouTube it later, later. All right, so, and it's got kind of this big, or now, whatever, um, uh, this big kind of chubby guy uh, on this board, and uh, he's got this big red nose, which is a light bulb, and the whole idea is that you are the surgeon, and so you get to operate, and you get to remove body parts from him. Like, there's, a, 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 there's an Adam apple, Adam's apple that you can remove, but it's in the shape of an apple. There's a, you know, he's, he's got a bread basket, and you got to get the piece of bread that's shaped like a bread out of his bread basket. You guys, anyone remember this game, right? And, and, uh, and you had these little metal tweezers, and they were connected to the board, and, and you'd go down, and the whole idea is everybody's looking at it. This is very high-pressure stuff. It is surgery, by the way. And so you're sitting there, and the idea is you get paid if you're able to remove it without getting, ah, right? So there's these metal parts around these small little holes, and you take these little metal things, and you, you put it in there, and everybody's watching you in your hands, and you back off, and you're man, this is, this is tense. And you get down there and you get ready and, you, and, and, and if you just barely even move and touch those sides, you get this, right? And, and then you just sit down and you throw it down. You don't get any pay at that particular point. And this is highly stressful board game. Did anybody, only thing more stressful, but it's not a board game, is old maid. The moment you get that old maid, ah, you know, you understand? Okay, you guys are with me, right? And so this, it's, it's extremely stressful. So this concept of stepping out of line at all, moving just a little bit out of line and getting <clears throat> makes for a stressful board game. But when you begin to take that same kind of thinking and you bring it into your theology and your relationship to God, then it becomes a very stressful life in which we live. Why is this important? It's important because you and I think for a moment, we think that when we're in really, really difficult times when nobody can help and we have to turn to God in those particular moments, that somehow you and I begin to clean up our lives. Because why? Because we believe that it's in cleaning up our lives and making things good that somehow God is now, because we're better and we've cleaned everything up, that he's going to, he's going to answer us. I mean, we got to get squeaky enough. We, we we're like, okay, kids, go, go to church. It's time to go to church. And not only go to church, but we're going to be on time. People on time, I mean, you know they're going through difficult times. And, and, and we're, we're throwing all, all the PG-13 movies, and we're not watching those. And from now on, it's all Caleb all the time. And, and this is what we're going to do. And if you, if you would be honest, or at least attempt to be honest, you know as well as I do, all of those are an attempt to be squeaky clean, to somehow earn the favor of God. 
Now, I'm not against at all you and I cleaning up our lives and doing or allow God to do that and for us to want to be righteous and to, to live into, into submission to God and live into obedience of him. I'm not against that at all. But what I am saying, it is messed up when the motivation is completely backwards. When you and I are seeking to do those things because he has helped us and because of his goodness, that's right. When we do all those things to somehow earn his goodness, that's a stressful life to be able to undertake. And if you're like me, many times in needing an answer to prayer or needing help in my life, I've tried to sit there and say, hey, God, I, I need to get it all together. And then every once in a while, I'll slip. And, and sometimes I feel like God's going, Aah! I'm like, I'm not going to be able to get his help now. What am I going to ultimately do? And it's not the way that God works. That's the, that's the point. The whole point is not for you and I to know how to be a good person like David because we're going to see many illustrations that he is not the good guy that we always think. He makes drastic, horrible decisions, but God is not limited by his failures. So here's what I want you to see. I, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying at this particular point that somehow underneath of great stress and difficulties that some reason sin is okay to be able to do. Sin is sin. Stress, no stress. It's against God. It's something to be able to, 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 to be taken seriously. Are you, are you guys hearing what I'm saying? And, it's, and I'm certainly not teaching, let's sin so that grace may abound. In other words, I'm not saying, hey, listen, expect this. If you know what to do is wrong and you, 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 you determine in your heart to do it anyway, it's okay because you can guarantee the help of God. If you know what to do is wrong and you sin intentionally against him, what you can expect is Hebrews chapter 12. You can expect the discipline of God coming your way. It's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that in the midst of seeking to do what is right and live in this life, you and I are going to fall and stumble in more ways than we can ever know. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that his goodness and his help towards you and me is not limited to you and I faltering and failing. That's good news. That's encouraging. Second thing we want to be able to see is this, and, and this is equally as encouraging. It's very similar. And that is this, is that God not only is help is not only limited, is, is not limited to our failures, but it's also not limited to our foolishness, to our foolishness. Now, in verse 10, what we see in the rest of the text is we're going to find that he is, he is still as chaotic as ever. He's still seeking somebody to be able to help him. And he decides at this point to do something that seems odd, strange. Verse, verse 10 tells us, And David rose and he fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Gath, now that sounds familiar. Where do we know that word, uh, Gath? Well, I, I know it's, it's in Philistine territory. This is a, this is a city of, of the number one enemy against Israel. What in the world would bring him to the point that he would be going to his enemies to be able to receive help by? Well, I think what he's probably doing, if I had to speculate, is he's probably thinking in terms of, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So he knows that the Philistines are against Saul. I mean, he was in those battles. And now he's sitting there going, okay, well, listen, Saul hates them. Saul hates me. Maybe they'll kind of take me in, and maybe we can partner together somehow. But clearly, David didn't think all the way through this, all right? And so look, look at the, what the rest of the story says here. It says, he, he says in verse 11, and he says, And the servants of Achish said to him, 
Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him uh, in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. You you see what's going on here? He goes, "Uh, whoa, uh uh-oh. I didn't really think through the fact that now I remember the whole Gath thing. Um, There was a giant by the name of Goliath, of Gath. That's right. Of Gath was not his last name. Uh, Of Gath means where he was from. He's from Gath, the city that I'm looking for people to protect me in. And and this is the place where not only did I kill their champion, but many of their sons and many of their grandsons and their fathers were taken in battle because of me. This is not good. And so the Bible sits there and says that they laid hands on him, which doesn't mean casting out a demon. It means that they were going to arrest him. And now they're going to take him to the king, King Achish. And, and, but before they do, he, in, in, desperate, in, in desperate sense, he begins to act as though he's lost his mind. So he begins to like spray graffiti on the, on the, on the front gate. I don't know what, what he's writing up there. Probably FSU stinks. I don't know, something... He's up there spray painting all that stuff, marring the whole city at that particular time. And then he's like, oh, man, I need, to, I need a little more crazy. And so the Bible says he starts, he starts spitting out on his own in, in, in slobber, begins to just drool, begins to go down his beard. And it looks crazy. And, and, and so he takes him to the king. And so the king looks at him in verse 14, says, behold, you see, the man is mad. I, I, I have felt this way before. Have, have you not? Listen to what he says. Why then have you brought him to me? Do, do I lack madmen that you have brought me this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Don't I have enough crazies around me that you need to bring another crazy person my way? And so what does he do at this particular point? He sends him packing. And that's all the author says. What do we do with it? Aren't these strange stories? And what, what do we do with this? Is he being prescriptive? Is if you just want to be alone, just slobber a lot? You're at work, you just want people alone? Just blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it probably worked, to be honest with you. But is it prescriptive? I don't think he's saying this, this is what we do. I don't think he's trying to, uh, I don't think he's also trying to promote the, remember the phrase, hey man, better lucky than good. <laughs> he wasn't good, wasn't real bright, but... Man, he was lucky, man. He, woo, yeah, man, I can't believe that. That was one of those close calls right there. That was pretty good thinking right there, but the dude is lucky. I don't think that's what it's supposed to promote. Here's kind of the blessing of learning, studying something like 1 Samuel, is we get to go and write and listen to some of the Psalms of, of what he was thinking after these particular events that took place in his life. And so let's hear it from David in his own words. What, what did he make of this particular event? Psalm 34, verses 4 through 6. He writes in the psalm. He says there in verse 4, and this is, this is right after this particular event. This is how he interprets it. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and he saved him out of all of his troubles. What he's saying is, is that even when we are foolish and we make really foolish decisions, you know, sometimes not everything is sin. Sometimes it's foolish. And the truth is, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the two sometimes. But even as his foolishness, God was good. And, and he was good to him, despite the bad 
decisions that he ultimately made. And then what I love about the psalm is later in verse 17, he says the same thing, but not for himself, but for all of those who would be the children of God. Verse 17, he says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. I want to make sure that we understand again that there is a difference between the first point and the second point. God is good and his help is not limited to when we blow it and we sin. But his help is not limited as well when you and I do some ridiculous and make some really stupid decisions. Have you guys ever made dumb decisions? You're like, wow, it's why we're kind of like so rough on our children, right? We're like, hey, I made that decision. It was bad. Don't do it. All right, don't do it. Learn from my decisions. And many times we want them to, but sometimes they have to learn. They choose to learn of their own. They don't want to listen. You know, parenting has really been in this whole tension, this really being foolish. Um, I would love to think that I'm a great parent. Truth is, I'm an idiot when it comes to parenting. I try to understand the word of God and understand what it means, but the truth is, I, I, sometimes my, my, my parenting is, is hindered because of my sin, and sometimes it's hindered just because I'm foolish. A couple, I, I can give you a lot of examples. I, it started long ago, like when I first became a parent. My son was two years old, um, and we, I, I believe my wife at the time, don't know for sure, but I think she just had um, Annalise, our, our first daughter. And, uh, and I was sitting there, and I was trying to be all super dad. And I said, like, honey, I, I, got, I got the man child. I'll take him out. We'll just go have a good time. We'll, we'll go and fill his belly full of junk food and come back and vomit. You know? And so, so that's what we'll do. And so I, I got him and got him in the back of the seat and put him like in his little booster chair and, and everything. And I kind of grabbed the little milky sippy cup, gave it to him, said, okay, there we go. And I'm still trying to get him in. And he takes a big swig, and he just bleh, spits it all over my face, spits it all down my, my clothes, and I am ticked. I said, no, sir. We do not spit our milk on daddy. We do not do this. We did not teach you this. This is your sin nature doing this. This is not what we do. We were going, you and I, two-year-old, remember, you and I were going to go and have a good time. We're no, no, no more good time now, buddy. No, I got to go in. I got to take a shower. And guess where you're going? You're going straight into bed. That's where you're going. That's what happens. That's the consequence of your sin and your actions towards your daddy. Clip them all out. Take them all out. Bring them into the, uh, in, into the door. And my wife is like, you just left and you're back, right? And so you bring him in and he goes, oh, hey, listen, I'll get to it in just a minute. He spit in my face. All right, so he's going to bed. So I hate to tell you this. I paddled at his little hiney. I put him in bed. He's crying. Mom's like, what's going on? I take a shower. I get out. I'm still fuming. And she comes up to me and she goes, so, so is, is this the cup that you fed him? I said, yeah. She goes, this, this milk has been in there for like a week that you handed him. He spit it up because it was rotten milk, right? I, I know. Look, don't judge me. All right, don't judge me. All right? Because you've been there, haven't you? You've done the same thing. You, you've sat there and you've gotten all over your child and they didn't do anything. And listen, I don't have to go 10 years ago. I can go to last week. Last week, one of our kids who's now potty trained, uh, Ellie, she's too young to know that I'm talking about her. But anyway, so I'll, I'll do that now. I can't do it in about a year or so. But, but she, potty trained, she's been potty trained for a while. But every once in a while, you know, she'll have a little bit of an accident, as we all have. And so uh, hopefully you're grown out of that. But anyway, so... so Wow, spiraling down. And so, so here's, he's sitting there, and, 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 and they're all coming home, and I'm so excited to be able to see him. And I open the door, and, and here comes Ellie. And I go, Ellie, hey, baby. And I hear this, hey, her seat's all wet. Ellie, 
How many times have we told you not to wet your seat? You know better than this. You're old enough to this. You're doing this just to spite us. You're doing this because you're, you're, you're not obeying what mommy and daddy is saying. This is wrong. Now, you have to get the physical picture of this. She's here, and if you're really going to get onto him, you've got to get real eye level with him, right? And so I'm down, and I'm just giving her the riot act and everything, and I'm telling her that she's going to go to bed. She's not going to be able to do what we're ultimately going to do. You can see my nature of parenting, go to bed. That's how I solve everything. And so I'm down right in her face, and then all of a sudden I hear Caden come in, and Caden goes, hey, Dad, she didn't wet her seat. She just, there was just some water that was spilt in there. And still at that point, I'm like this. Then what do you do at that point, Right? <laughs> And then at that particular point, it's like, all right, high five, girl. All right, good job. Hey, nice job. Happy slappy. All right, there we go. All right, good girl, you left that good. And you know, listen, you know that I am dementing these children. There's no way you go through that and you're normal for the rest of your life. And here's, here's just kind of the point. In the area of parenting, if I'm completely and fully dependent on my ability to be able to be sinless, or to not make foolish decisions, then both I and my children are most to be pitied. But if in this area of my life, in every single other area of my life, God is good and God helps, both when I fail and the times in which I'm foolish, then there's hope. And that's the God in who we have in this passage. And so, so we have to ask ourselves the question, but, but why? There's still that point. Why would he do this? Because God is gracious. If the only time that God would help us is when you and I were good, lacked any sin or lacked any type of foolishness, he could never help us. The whole story of God helping David is not because he's ultimately righteous and is good and he's perfect in every way but it's because god is righteous god is good in every way and, and, and so what we see and we see this all the way through the old testament do you remember the bread that i talked about a couple minutes ago that the holy bread that was in there it was supposed to represent and demonstrate god's goodness and him taking care of his people and the 40 years of the wilderness did you read in the old testament where the people ultimately righteous during the 40 years where they walked around and complained about god and told them how they didn't have meat and they didn't have this and they were tired of manna and what did god do he was faithful to be able to feed them here's a place that he's in their help. He still received their help for 40 years. Here's David. He's unfaithful, and he's not good, but God is good, and he's faithful. Before you and I ever came to faith in Jesus Christ, and God demonstrated that faith to us, we were fed, we breathed oxygen. Many good things happened to us. Why? Because we were good? No, we hated God. But in common grace, he was still good. Why? Because it's how he acts. He helps and gives good things to those who are undeserving. And now that we are born again and we are children of God, how much more can we expect and be confident in the goodness of God as his child when we fail and when we're foolish? See, the whole idea of all this bread all the way through the Old Testament is not for you and I to be physically minded and think about fleshly things all the time, but to, for us to think our greater need, and our greatest need is not physical bread, but spiritual bread. 
And that's a demonstration of God's greatest grace. The Bible taught us, it teaches us in John chapter 6, verses 15 through 51. Listen to, listen to Jesus referring to himself. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the, uh, for the, life of the world is my flesh. Then in verse 58, this is the bread that came down out of heaven, not, as the, not the bread that our fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread or with this bread will live forever. It's a demonstration of his greatest grace. When we are not good, he is. So I don't, I don't know where you are this morning. We're, we're about to pray. I'm going to ask Nick to come at this point. I don't know where you are. Maybe you've tasted of his grace, but you've never repented of sin and placed your complete faith in him. That, 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 that goodness is calling you to him, to faith in him, repent and believe and follow him. And maybe some of you are in that place where you don't find anybody that you can lean on right now. And God says that's okay because I want you to learn to lean and to trust in me alone. And I'm going to help you in the midst of your trouble because I've made a covenant with you, but it is not going to be limited to your abilities, either your failures or your foolishness. That's something to rejoice and to be grateful of. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your gospel. God, strange stories sometimes in the word of God. Lord, you have things that you would like to teach us. Let us learn and take these things to heart before we take the Lord's Supper this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, man. Would you stand?